when I was growing up, our family of five every other year would travel from D.C. back to Texas to visit family at Christmas. Now, it was the mid to late 1970s, and for those that were not alive at that time, the speed limit on the interstates was a staggering and whopping 55 miles an hour, which meant about 24 hours of travel over two days in the old Pontiac Bonneville. Now, when I think back to that time and I think back to those trips, I really think my parents were doing something extremely wise, and when I think about it, they were really ahead of their time. They connected the destination to the journey. They connected the destination to the journey. We were headed to Christmas and Christmas with family. So why not allow that destination, that goal, to affect how we traveled it? At a time when so many families were making themselves miserable and ratcheting up the anxiety and, and the worry and the stress in their cars by trying to get to the destination as fast as they could, we stayed in a nice hotel. We ate in sit-down restaurants and took our time as we ate. There was no rushing about. Every time we stopped for gasoline, we would get treats and stretch our legs. We listened to Christmas music and we would sing along with the radio and we'd look forward to listening to Paul Harvey at noon. We played car bingo and other games to pass the time. Now, don't get me wrong, three highly competitive, highly athletic boys sharing a back seat presented unique challenges to the journey. But the nature of the destination affected the character of the journey. The nature of the destination affected the character of the journey. I mean, we weren't going to prison. We were going to grandmother and granddad's house at Christmas and family and fun and presents, food. And it was the goodness of that place, the anticipation of that place that reflected back and shaped that long journey. Now, here are three words I want you to remember. Destinations inform journeys. Destinations inform journeys. Now, a question for us, when we think about our destination, we know it's going to be eternal life with God. It's eternity with God. So when we think about eternity, when we think about eternal life, what comes to mind? Now, the subject of eternal life is a big, big subject in the New Testament. In fact, it gets addressed about 44 times in the New Testament. Here are a couple of examples. John chapter 3, verse 16, the most well-known text in the New Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus, speaking in John chapter 5, says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but listen carefully, has crossed over from death to life. Has already crossed over from death to life. In John chapter 12, Jesus still speaking says, I know that his command leads to eternal life. In Romans chapter 5, this time from Paul, Paul in the letter to the church in Rome says, Just as sin reigned in death, so also grace must reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, Paul, this time to the churches in the region of Galatia, says at the end of the letter, we know it's Galatians, whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So I ask again, eternal life is all over the place. We know it's our destiny. It's life with God. So what comes to mind when we think of eternal life? For most of us, we think of eternal life as, as this, this chronological time. We think of it as a life of infinite duration. It's a life that never ends. And that is true. And that's a, an important part of it. And that part is great. 
But there's a little bit more to it than that. A biblical scholar by the name of Brenda Coline writes that eternal life in the Synoptic Gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as well as Paul, does indeed have this idea of this never-ending life at the end of time, and it's a life with God. But in the Gospel of John, there are some nuances that are really important to know. For example, in the Gospel of John, eternal life is something that is experienced in part, not fully because we're not in eternity, eternal life is something experienced in part in the present. Think again to what Jesus says in John chapter 5, eternal life crossing over from death to life already. And not only is it something that is experienced in the present in part, but there is a part of eternal life that has this relational component to it. Now think about what Jesus says in one of the last prayers he prays, John chapter 17, at the beginning of that prayer, verse 3, he says this, now this is eternal life. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God. Now remember, Jesus is saying that they know you in a prayer that implies this intimate relationship with God. Now notice in that passage when he uses the word know, he's not saying know about God, but he is talking about knowing God, that they may know you in the way that he does. Now this is more than just head knowledge. This is The way the word know is used in the Old Testament and the New Testament implies much more than just head knowledge. When God says to Israel in Amos chapter 3, verse 2, you alone have I known among the families of the earth, what he is referring to in that knowledge is his intimate, interactive relationship with them. He knows them. And it, it, I mean, God obviously knows that there are other families, other people on planet earth. And then over in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 1, where Mary learns that she is about to give birth to the Son of God, says, how can this be because I've never known a man? Now, she's not. she knows about men. Men are around her. She's not lived exclusively with women. It's more than just head knowledge, just word no. And we know that there are a couple of ways that you can know something. You can know something in an introductory, kind of a superficial head knowledge kind of way. I can read a travel book and tell you some facts about Paris, France, although I've never been there. I can tell you where the Eiffel Tower is located. I can tell you how to get to Notre Dame. I might even, from that travel book, be able to tell you where you can drink espresso and where you might get a great croissant. But what I can't tell you is anything about the experience of eating that croissant or drinking that espresso, or what it's like to eat that croissant or to drink that espresso at a sidewalk cafe in, in the, on this great popular boulevard, beautiful boulevard in Paris, France. There's another kind of a knowledge, and that is intimate knowledge. You can know something intimately. To know something intimately is to know the details through personal interaction, through personal experiences, and through personal disclosures. An intimate relationship is a growing, deepening relationship. It is different from knowing about. It is knowing something intimately. And this is the kind of relationship that Jesus is talking about. So here is a definition of eternal life. Eternal life means an interactive and intimate relationship with God forever starting now. Eternal life means an interactive and intimate relationship with God forever beginning now. As Dallas Willard would often say, eternity is now in session. The message of the gospel is more than an arrangement that Jesus made to get you into heaven when you die. The message of the gospel is that God, through Jesus Christ, is establishing his will on earth as it is in heaven. So what does that eternal life mean? 
two things I want you to think about. It means a lot of things, but at least these two. Number one, eternal life means life with God once more. Eternal life means life with God once more. God's desire for us is that we should live with him. That is one of the ways that Jesus described the reason for his coming. He says in John chapter 14, I am the way. No one gets to the Father except through me. One of the reasons I have come is to be the way to the Father. This is the life that we, all humans, live from the creation of the heavens and the earth. We lived with God and we worked with God. We participated with God. We cooperated with God. We walked with God. We enjoyed God in the Garden of Eden. But then sin enters the picture and sin separates us from God and it broke the with God life. But Jesus, through his incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection and ascension, has once again made available what Paul describes to Timothy as the life that is life indeed. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 19. It is a life that means no condemnation, Romans chapter 8. It is an eternal life. It is a life that is abundant, John chapter 10. It is a life that is held in God's hand and no one can snatch it out. It is a life that is reconciled to God, Romans uh, chapter 5, and it is a life that is with God. The Christian life is a life worth pursuing because of what Jesus brought and what he still brings to ordinary, plain old humans in their garden variety lives. So eternal life means life with God once again. But eternal life means becoming now who we will be then. The second thing eternal life means is becoming now who we will be then. The idea that we can enjoy forgiveness at Jesus' expense and then have nothing more to do with him is not, I repeat, is not a biblical idea. You will not find that teaching anywhere on the pages of the New Testament. Bonhoeffer in the 1930s said, that kind of thinking is really cheap grace. A.W. Tozer writing about a half generation later was even more blunt and to the point. It was a heresy. And he says, a notable heresy has come into being throughout evangelical Christian circles. The widely accepted concept that we humans can choose to accept Christ only because we need him as a savior and that we have the right to postpone our obedience to him as Lord as long as we want to. End of quote. That is not found as a teaching anywhere in the Bible. The question I think that we have to answer in light of all of this is, why do I trust what he says about salvation, but not trust what he has to say about all of life? Do we trust him to be right on forgiveness, but wrong on everything else? The Apostle John says this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Jesus was the most intelligent and capable human being who ever lived. The Hebrew writer says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. In the, the next breath, he says that Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. He was joy and love and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control all rolled up in a human being. He was morally superior with, without being self-righteous or judgmental. He could love his enemies and pray for his persecutors. He could turn the other cheek. He was comfortable with everyone and most everyone was comfortable with him. And he was self-sacrificing. He was the perfect forgiver and his life changed the world. And he called people to follow him in order to be like him in the world. And the quality of life and the kind of life that he called us to live is the only life worth pursuing. 
Now, we're going to be talking about this more and more and developing these ideas further and further in the coming weeks. But I want to end with this. There's an old joke about an old farmer who was kind of struggling, decided to play the lottery, and finally one day hit the lottery big and instantly became this multimillionaire. And the local newspaper traveled out to the farm and met up with him for an interview. And the interviewer asked him, he said, uh, now that you're a multimillionaire and really can do whatever you want, what are you going to do? And the farmer kind of thought for a minute and he said, I think I'm going to keep farming until the money runs out. Now, unfortunately, I think that that describes a lot of how Christians operate in the world. There is this unbelievable, tremendous thing that has happened to us, our salvation, the, the, the reconciliation to God, the gift of the Spirit. We have been given this incredible life, but the way that we live day to day does not change. Suppose you're cooking a meal that calls for a pound of ground meat. Would you use a quarter pound of, of, of salt to season that meat, that meat? Probably not, because a quarter pound of salt would absolutely penetrate that, that meat many times over than what was necessary. Now, as Christians, we are called by Jesus to be the salt of the earth. Now, in the world today, there is roughly 7.8 billion people. And there are roughly 2.2 billion people who identify themselves as Christians. In other words, a quarter of the people on earth identify themselves as Christians. Now, can we say as Christians, making up a quarter of the population of the earth, called to be salt, are we influencing the earth as much as that quarter pound of salt might penetrate and influence and change that pound of meat. We have to talk about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and the life that is worth pursuing. It is my prayer that in the coming weeks, we will learn more and more what it means to live in eternity right now as disciples of Jesus. I hope you have a great week and may God bless you in all that you do. We'll see you next week.